China has pushed this the last about five years. There's been increasing discussion in China and from top officials, including Xi Jinping, of the doctrine of cyber sovereignty, which is really recasting the internet as as a as a sovereign realm of the government. This is having an effect also on global internet governance. That you see this doctrine of cyber sovereignty having an effect at places like the UN, at the International Telecommunications Union, which is the kind of major body which sets uh, telecoms law around the world, and also at things like ICANN, which has a lot of influence on internet governance. Hello and welcome to Password123, a cyber podcast produced by UNSW Canberra. In this podcast, we explore a range of topics from the world of cyber and speak to some of the most influential figures in the InfoSec community. My name is Tom Sear and I'm an industry fellow at UNSW Canberra Cyber at the Australian Defence Force Academy. We kick off the season with an interview about what is undoubtedly the largest digital censorship apparatus in the world, the Great Firewall of China. That also happens to be the title and subject of our first guest's latest book. I was lucky enough to sit down with James Griffiths when he was in the country a couple of months ago to delve into this topic more deeply. James is a senior producer and correspondent with CNN, based in Hong Kong, and knows firsthand the impact of China's firewall. Welcome, James. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you. So could you tell me about how you came to actually write this book? Yeah, so when I first moved to China in, in kind of the early 2010s, there was this huge surge of optimism and there was a feeling that the internet was finally fulfilling its promise of, you know, opening up China and bringing liberal democracy and all of that. And this this was around, um, it's really around the resurgence of, of Weibo, which is China's version of Twitter. It came just after the 2008 Beijing Olympics, when we saw a lot of relax, relaxing of controls in China. And Weibo really did have an effect in terms of, uh, it drove a lot of conversation around pollution. Uh, it drove a lot of the conversation around uh, corruption as well. And, and, it, and it started to seem like there was maybe a shift in it occurring. And obviously now looking back, we can see that that wasn't really the case. And in my reporting and, and in my personal life, I've, I've experienced the uh, the kind of blowback from this this small degree of openness, uh, and so that got me really interested in in just how the the Great Firewall had developed, uh, and also how it was so uh, how it was so able to react to these these new challenges, and and to 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 you know really keep us one step ahead of, of everyone who was trying to trying to push against censorship. And so I guess yeah, uh, twenty nineteen is the thirtieth anniversary of the web. It's also the thirtieth anniversary of the June four Tiananmen Square. Uh, incident. Uh, how might have it played a role in uh, influencing the construction of the Great Firewall? Yeah, absolutely. So um, both myself and, and other people who have researched this area have, have, have come, you know, the, we found that the, the number one thing that is censored on, on the Chinese internet is not any particular topic, it, it's, it's collective action of any, of any form. And so it doesn't really matter what you're trying to organise around. The fact that you're trying to organise and, and, and spread solidarity and build groups online is, is in itself enough to be censored. And of course, the thing that is, the, the, for, from the government's perspective, the, the terrifying thing that they want to avoid is a repeat of something like Tiananmen, which, which we, we tend to think of as, as something which happened in a square in Beijing, but actually was countrywide, involved thousands and hundreds of thousands of people across the country, involved workers' groups and student groups, you know, really was this huge swath of society. And, and that was seen, perhaps rightly, by the government as, as a potentially existential threat to them, to, to one-party control. And they've made it, they've made an effort ever since to make sure that that never happens again and, and to make sure that the internet never leads to a kind of similar situation. 
so how did how does well how does social control function in um and how does it relate to the history so did it start sort of um early with um obviously with uh Jiang Ximin in 1994 the golden shield um sort of through Fang Binxing and t- through to Lu Wei is there a pattern of did it develop instantaneously into a, a social control mechanism or a way to control civil society or has it developed that over time I think the instinct has always been there and the desire has always been there and it's really a matter of technolo- technology catching up with the chi- with the Chinese authorities there is there was always kind of this conversation about the internet as if it was only beneficial for dissidents and democrats and you know the forces of liberal, liberal democracy and this is kind of you know absurd really when we think about it because of course actually technology enables a huge degree of surveillance and of control and it's really been a boon for for the censors and, and for the authorities in China and we've seen the ability of them to to not only stay a, stay a step ahead of people trying to subvert censorship but also just generally to control society to influence public opinion and also to monitor it in a way that benefits them without allowing people to kind of um push for changes that they don't want so how so let's talk about how it actually works so mm. i guess so there's the what we call the great firewall but there's also the golden shield so are they two separate systems or are they integrated yeah, I mean the great firewall is is a term that's been coined by kind of critics of the firewall and it you know it doesn't really refer to any one thing but I I do think it's useful because it's useful to think of this as a collective body of of various different things but they 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 mesh together and they they act as one. But um I I really break it down as I think it's important to see it as operating on two levels and so you have at the international level you you have what we really would consider to be a firewall that that kind of that is what blocks things like Twitter and Facebook and Google um and so and that exists at the point where your chinese national internet goes onto the international internet and it's and it's looking at uh, traffic which is crossing that border and blocking stuff it doesn't like and also just surveilling and and controlling other stuff and that is perhaps the stereotype of censorship in china but also it, it's it's not you know it's what affects foreigners when they go to china it's what affects us when we like we can't go on twitter and we can't access our gmail anymore but it's not really what affects most most people in china because obviously they're not trying to use these services and so what affects them is is kind of censorship at a national level which really occurs inside chinese internet companies so a lot of this has actually been privatized out to sorry it's actually been farmed out to private in, internet companies and so to your weibo's and to your to your baidu's and that is that is great for the government because not only are they not paying to hire all of these thousands of of censors and paying for the technology and things like that but by leaving it to private companies you get to take advantage of their own innovation and then also they tend to trend in a direction which benefits government control and benefits and becomes more censorious because the rules of the chinese internet while there are a few very obvious red lines things like tiananmen taiwanese independence things like that there are there's a lot more gray area and, and companies need to make these make these judgments on the fly for themselves and they tend to make the judgments in a censorious direction in, in just to stay safe because the re- repercussions of you know allowing something that you should have censored can be very great and so i guess so we think about the firewalls being like it's sort of like tcpip it's deep packet inspection i mean this is how i understand it maybe mm. it's changed over time um sort of dns poisoning um sort of inspection of content in and of itself um technically has it changed um 
in the last 10 years? Uh, we sent, like, how does VPN sniffing occur, for example? Or Yeah, it's, I think at, at, at a core technical level, it hasn't actually changed that much because, because the, the technology is not that complicated. You know, a lot of businesses and, and universities even have, have firewalls, you know, that this isn't, you don't need a million, millions and millions of dollars to build this type of stuff. It's just more, but what has changed is that it's got much better at dealing with ways of circumventing the firewall. So um, people are probably familiar with using VPNs, virtual private networks. We use them a lot for businesses, universities, connect to various servers. And and these have become a kind of inadvertent uh, anti-censorship tool because by their nature, they create a, an encrypted tunnel, which something like the firewall can see can see can see that there's this encrypted tunnel but can't tell what it what it's being used for so so it could be perfectly innocent it could be someone connecting to their uh their office network back at home to check their check their email or it could be someone using this as a way of getting onto facebook or getting onto some some subversive website and and this has been somewhat difficult for the government to deal with but not impossible and the, the important thing is that vpns can seem like they are very difficult to block, especially as a foreigner who, who kind of maybe we, we buy a commercial VPN when we go into China, there for a couple of weeks, it works pretty well. We get on our Gmail most of the time. But within China itself, it is of course much more difficult, A, to get hold of a VPN because you perhaps don't want a credit card record linking you to this this potentially illegal software. Um, the the costs of being caught with that software are, are, are much higher. And then also the government has, has shown that during especially sensitive times, it can block all VPNs and, and, and it doesn't do this all the time because it, it has knock on effects. You have to, you just have to block this at a kind of protocol level and that affects businesses, VPNs, but also some embassies use VPNs. And as you can imagine, embassies are pretty unhappy when they can't do their secure communications. And, and, but, but when, it, when they need to, the government's shown that they can do it. And we, we can imagine, you know, we're talking now a couple of days out from June, from the anniversary of June 4th, we can pretty confidently predict that most VPNs will not be working around June 4th. And, and so that's, that's where there's been a real degree of sophistication. And it's kind of a cat and mouse game between uh, VPN developers and, and developers of other circumvention software and the sensors. But this is a cat and mouse game where the cat has millions and millions and millions of dollars more and so much more resources than the mice. And so in terms of, so there's, there's blocking and then is censorship the other main tool in which you prevent people connecting in a civil society or organising it? Like how do you actually stop people organising that environment? Yeah, I mean, so, so this is the most important thing, right? That the, 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 uh, the, the, sometimes it's seen as the, the, because the Great Firewall isn't 100% effective and that there are these various holes and you can point to these things that get through occasionally, that that, that is maybe what drove the narrative for so long that this was eventually going to fail, that this was a kind of um, Sisyphean task that they were never going to be able to complete. And and I think that's wrong. And, and, and the, I think history shows that it actually has been incredibly effective. And it's been effective because it, while it cannot stop all information, it can stop practically all organizing and that's because it's much it's much harder to connect with other groups and to grow your group offline because there's also of course there's a big police state and surveillance there and then so if you can kill all of these groups right at the kind of early stage and when it's a handful of people and they're trying to get new members it's you don't get mass social movements and you you, you don't get anything that kind of threatens the party structure and and i think they've shown themselves to be incredibly effective and this can play out in some pretty interesting ways that you'll see 
perhaps a movement that doesn't necessarily look politically dangerous from 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 a kind of western perspective so 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 there was a couple of, in the last couple of years been a lot of crackdown on the feminist movement in china even around you know the original uh, it was five women who were arrested and that they were organizing to prevent sexual harassment on public transport this is hardly you wouldn't think that's something that's going to shake the the foundations of chinese society but what the government realized or perhaps what they they fear is that if you let these small movements that are outside the party structure if you let them develop you know, one, two, ten years down the line, that could become something that could potentially threaten the party in a more serious way. I guess, so you speak to about Falun Gong in your book, various other early forms of um, collective organisation. So how do you, how, how does the system explore or target, how does it identify what is collective activity? So it just looks for a group, so like, what's an example? So we, we have Facebook, we set up, say we're going to run a political campaign, We'll start a page like Stop or Start Adani in Australia or something on Facebook, and then we'll all like that page and mm. and and then collectively discuss collective action within that. That's not quite how it works is it, in China. So, or does it work that way? Do you go and look for sort of groups, or do you look for sort of uh, keywords which would indicate collective action, or um, how specifically would you mm. identify what is collective action? Yeah, so it's happening in two ways. I mean, so. On on Weibo, which is more like of a Twitter kind of thing, but that, but it it's kind of much more much more popular in China than Twitter is in in the West, and the the there are that that Weibo employs uh, employs a massive amount of AI and other technology, but also employs thousands of of human sensors who are who are monitoring discussions and they're they're, they're seeing and you know this is one of those things that AI is catching up, but also you do to a certain level need a, a human sensor to to look at this and to be able to tell exactly when things are moving in, in, in a kind of organizational way, when, when this isn't just a discussion happening, this isn't people complaining about the Adani mine, this is people saying we need to do something about this. And, and you know, sometimes you'll see there's an equivalent of hashtags on Weibo. There was a recent one where an LGBTQ hashtag was, was completely deleted and discussion around it was banned. And that, that is because there was a sense and you know, this was, I don't think we would even really call this organization, but, you know, I guess these guys are experts and they can see the direction things are trending in. And there was a sense that this was becoming too broad and was attracting too many people and we need to shut this down. And so they're very, very sensitive. And then the other side in other media, your other main kind of app or main social media platform in China is WeChat, which is is, is a messaging app, but has a, has a kind of group function and, and has a, you know, kind of mini mini chat room functions that that, that exist, and that is very surveilled. Um, there's been a lot of research, especially by Citizen Lab in in Canada, about surveillance and censorship on WeChat, and that is looking for keywords, looking for um, organizing on the platform, and and really cracking down. And and this often is will then go offline. That that you know, someone who is trying to organize this stuff will get a visit from the police, and someone will have a word. And if a word isn't enough, they may find the next visit involves them being taken to stay somewhere. I guess that's uh, leads to ask about social credit. So I guess that's the other way you could penalize. You've got the CAC working with the Ministry of State, saying go and knock on this person's door, presumably, um, have a chat. Um, if the chat doesn't work, um, I guess then now as social credit begins to become more increasingly integrated, I guess like WeChat, your bank accounts are fully integrated into, so you might just turn up with your bank account missing its money. Hmm. Um, so in the full, in the sense of that's the full integration of economic and social activity uh, is incorporated, I guess social credit's the, I guess the buzzword, I guess the, 
um, we're currently talking about as we head to, to 2020. But um, are you seeing, I guess I'm going to somewhere asking about whether you see this increasing over time or is accelerating and, and is social credit a part of that process? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, social credit as it's been proposed and, you know, this yet, this has yet to be implemented and they may find that this is actually a lot more difficult than they expect. And I, I think everyone agrees that 2020 as a, as a deadline is probably a pretty absurd one. Um, but, but as it's proposed, what I see this in terms of censorship is this is, you know, if you had the, the, the social media system and that's kind of pushing the censorship onto these private companies, social credit is a way to push the censorship onto the people themselves. Because once you're worrying about your credit score and once you're worrying about how your activities on both online and offline not that we ever really have offline anymore, you know, everything we do is, is, is in, interacts with, with this online system, that once you're worrying about how that can affect, you know, both your, your credit score, but, you know, this you potentially have effect on how you can travel, whether you can get loans, you know, job, job prospects, things like that, that it raises the bar of any kind of dissent and any kind of potentially, um, you know, any kind of political activity so high that I think most people will avoid it. And, and I think it does that in, in particularly pernicious ways because it, it's not, as it's been proposed, that were I to have a terrible social credit system, you know, that could really affect the, the credit of those around me, could potentially affect your credit by, by publicly interviewing me, things like that. And, you know, I think that has a much more of an effective system of social control than were it to be isolated scores. Because, you know, if I'm some politically motivated active student and I and I want to organize and I and I'm you know I hate the government and I and I don't care about posting online I don't care if I get censored I don't care if I get visited by the police I may be willing to tank my own social credit score but am I willing to tank my parents and my sisters and you know am I willing to to ruin my mother's business or stop my father from traveling around the country because I've driven their social credit scores so low and so I think we could you know if this system is implemented as it's been proposed we could see a real um shift from top-down censorship to kind of bottom-up self-censorship. That's interesting. So that sort of almost sounds a bit like old-school 20th-century scale authoritarianism. So I guess that sort of makes us think about, well, how, how might this model be distributed more globally or how it might be subtly influencing, um, I guess, global forms of internet? I mean, to some extent, um, uh, we talk a lot about Huawei, for example, but Huawei really took over, as I understand it, from other Western companies like Cisco building the systems and so on and so forth. So um, Western systems have been involved in, to some extent, constructing and informing um, the ICT networks and uh, perhaps continue to do so. I mean, the Google case with Dragonfly and rising sort of as a return from the first sort of Sino-Google war of 2009, I guess. so do we, how does it integrate with either more global social media companies or I guess a global internet? Mm. And, you know, and, and you mentioned Cisco. Cisco helped build the original Great Firewall. Cisco, you know, built most of the, the internet backbone in China before they were kind of pushed out by Chinese firms. So Western, Western companies, well, a lot of the attention is, is nowadays on Huawei and other, and other Chinese firms. Western companies don't have a particularly great track record in this regard. But um, when it comes to, China's effect on the global internet. This is this has been uh, there's been a marked increase in recent years of exporting both the technology which powers the Great Firewall and then also the the political and legal framework behind it. 
So you'll you'll see companies like Huawei will go into com- countries and help build out their infrastructure. The 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 kind of security firms that that sell all this surveillance tech will go in as well. But then also um, there's a lot of government to government exchanges, a lot of uh, various officials from various countries heading to Beijing for training sessions and for seminars on internet control and on you know policing the online environment. They they won't they won't described as censorship, but it's pretty clear what's going on. And then we've seen in a number of uh, developing countries, laws being passed that are either very clearly modeled on Chinese laws or, or clearly influenced by them. And, and that's, that's having a real, real effect on, on the global internet as it develops that, you know, this, there used to be this kind of pretty arrogant idea that as countries got online, that they would adopt the same internet that we use in in the US or in in, or in, in Australia and in Europe. But increasingly in the developing world, a lot of countries are, are building internets which look a lot more like China's. So do you think uh, the geopolitics of the world is now going to be broken up into internet structures of the world? So there might be a, there'll be a, it's a Chinese internet globe and a Western kind of internet, uh, maybe a Russian internet, uh, perhaps a semi-Indian and certainly an African type mm. internet. So are we going to see, we're going to see sovereignty reconstructed as the internet develops and, and systems like this begin to roll out increasingly? Yeah, absolutely. And, and China has pushed this, you know, the, 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 they've for the last about five years, there's been a increasing discussion in China and from top officials, including Xi Jinping, of the doctrine of cyber sovereignty, which is really recasting the internet as, as, a, as a sovereign realm of the government and that, you know, uh, that it will be defended and 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 governed in the same way that we we govern we govern our sovereign territory, and this is both about shoring up and legitimizing the Great Firewall and what the government already does, but I also think it's laying the groundwork for future challenges. So, you know, the current structure of the internet is very beneficial for something like the Great Firewall because it because it involves there are kind of choke points where you can institute things like this, but. From what we can tell, as we are moving towards eventually a more of a decentralized model, and and more, and and it could become more difficult. And so, by reframing this issue as one of sovereignty and one of territoriality, you you potentially lay the groundwork to push back against any attempts to to you know break down those barriers between the Chinese internet and the rest of the world. And to make efforts to do so would, you know, if the internet is your sovereign territory, what does that mean if if I am someone trying to undermine the Great Firewall? Am I am I in breach of sovereignty? Am I doing something akin to an act of war? And it, it makes everything, it raises the, the heat of this conversation pretty considerably. But does that mean uh, the internet's uh, becoming more, so the world's becoming more entangled with internet structures or like how would you describe? So I guess I'm thinking of the way in which, say, Russia and China perhaps through a couple of agreements have a shared understanding about positioning a, a global view of the internet from a sovereign perspective. Mm. Whereas um, I guess so-called Western model is more multilateral about mm. about openness. So, and I guess yeah, they are defensive. So like certainly the, the Brits have war gamed turning out the lights in in Moscow. So I guess the Russian model, which maybe is a bit less dependent on those American ICT systems than the Chinese one, perhaps, um, and it's able to be much more um, bilateral. It's able to do social media influence much more directly because it's less maybe than the Chinese system on, on Western models. But you're suggesting it as a, it's a blurring effect more than an entanglement effect. Is that, is that how you describe it in terms of how it spreads out through Africa? or Yeah, absolutely. And, and 
this is having an effect also on on kind of global internet governance that you see uh, you see this doctrine of cyber sovereignty having an effect at places like the UN, at the the World Telecom, uh, the International Telecommunications Union, which is the kind of major body which sets uh, telecoms law around the world, and also at things like ICANN, which has a lot of influence on internet governance. And China has always advanced um, uh, what they refer they call it multilateral versus multi-stakeholder. That that multilateralism it's just governments rather whereas the west has always promoted the involvement of civil society and business in these groups because civil society tends to be the only ones making the free speech argument um and and china has has tried to influence this and tried to advance its own vision and part of getting so many countries to sign up to the the chinese version of the internet and to, to, to adopt this cyber sovereignty is is also about gaining support at the international level for 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 rewriting the rules of the internet and rewriting you know what people can expect when they go online and uh how do you think it's rewriting the rules in australia and perhaps the indo-pacific way the chinese internet is functioning yeah i think that from a rules perspective you know our own governments are there's a certain degree to which they are committed to this stuff at a, at a national level rather than international level but i think when it comes to uh developing countries that are that are really kind of seen massive investment in their own domestic internets and seen you know bringing people online and and closing the 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 internet gap that they will not feel as obliged to bake in these kind of protections for free speech and 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 allow people to organize online because these because a, there's this fantastic model in China of that you can have a very successful internet and not have these things. And also, you know, as China undermines the international protections, that there just won't be the same influence that international bodies can bring on these com- countries to say, you know, you need to write your laws in this way or you need to, you know, enable people to, to exercise these types of freedoms. And that has a real effect. And then also, I think even in very developed democracies, the existence of this model and the spread of this model and the more... China stops becoming a unique thing. The more we, we stop really thinking of, of China and the rest of the world, the more it becomes, as you said, two versions of the internet and, and it's just which one you use, that it makes it easier for our own governments to make compromises in these areas and, and to, to, to reach for new powers and to, to you know, cut our ability to interact online and, or, you know, or, or even just to increase surveillance of what we do online. Right, because, I mean, I was talking about Similarities between Russia and China's models of internet, but in your book you you call you list the three censorious uh, c- um, countries: Russia, China, and Australia is the <laughs> the third one in that paragraph. And certainly, we've had some legislation about foreign interference in in twenty eighteen. Um, wonder what your thoughts are, perhaps on um, what is is known is technically known as the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendments Assist and As- Access Bill of twenty eighteen. Colloquially, is known as the encryption bill. Um, now you're in Australia, and um, what do you, what might your thoughts be on that particular piece of legislation? Yeah, so I mean, uh, Australia has a rather unfortunately been leading leading the world when it comes to 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 passing this this a lot of this legislation, and and the the really worrying thing about this is just the speed at which a lot of this legislation is passed without a lot of consultation of, of civil society and of industry groups and, and, you know, against the kind of massive complaints of these, of these groups as well. And, you know, this is, this is very worrying because this is something that has huge repercussions for us and, and has a lot of, um, you know, has a lot of kind of potential uh, ramifications that aren't necessarily obvious in the original, in the original wordings of the bill. You know, I think the encryption one is particularly interesting because um, while there are a lot of, 
domestic concerns, um, you know, there was a report, I think, in The Guardian recently about the, that it was, was enabling the government to request data from McDonald's of people that use their Wi-Fi and things like that. But also it raises questions about what the government will do when companies refuse to comply with these laws. So Signal, which is a very popular encrypted messaging app, They've said point blank, we will not comply with this law. We will not hand over um, any encryption keys to the Australian government. And so what is, what is Canberra going to do? Are they, are they going to block Signal entirely in Australia? Um, you know, in which case they're going to have to implement something akin to the Great Firewall in that kind of blocking. You know, are Australians going to be comfortable with that, with their government taking that kind of action? And, and so you see these potential ramifications that aren't necessarily scrutinized at the time when the laws are passed, mainly because these laws have been passed so quickly. And we saw that also with uh, the, social, the recent social media bill that I think this was passed in about three days and, and had very little scrutiny uh, in, in, in the Senate and you know, went straight through. And this is something that could have huge far-reaching effects on, on Australians' ability to, to, to organise and to, to discuss things online. And that's not to say that there's no room for regulation in this area. I don't think anyone would argue that, especially that social media is, is kind of um, ripe for legislation, ripe for regulation. But, you know, the internet, you mentioned at the start of this podcast, the, you know, this is with thir- the internet's been in development for 30 years. We maybe shouldn't regulate it in three days. Right. So, and then I guess the, the Christchurch incident has sort of accelerated mm. a lot of these, um, these challenges. Um, like, I'm aware that in, in China, for example, um, like the footage itself was available as far as we could see at least three to four days quite freely available three mm. to four days following and was even sort of weaponized through propaganda sort of suggesting, oh, well, um, in, in Ch- this wouldn't happen in China. Yeah. It's not a, we don't have these problems in China and, and sort of used as a way to demonstrate that civil unrest, um, religious freedom um, is likely to be a concern um, because this is the consequence of such. So almost using the video in that sort of way. Um, but then... I guess in the so-called Western global media, um, s- social media companies, um, is there some need then to to be regulating that type of activity? Is that an example where it's you would think a takedown regulation or a more draconian um, model would be more effective? Like our Attorney General was concerned that you know no one had really done anything within an hour in some of the social media companies, so. It was sort of suggesting unless you have regulation and tougher rules like the encryption legislation, then will companies comply? So I guess, so I guess in the Chinese model, there's a centralized surveillance state. But how how might we work more effectively with social media companies to encourage them to be um, more responsible in the way that they might manage content, but not risk the problem of freedom of speech? I guess. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge issue, and, and, and this is a very complicated one. And, you know, I think sometimes the, the, the Christchurch video has been, I think there is a wider issue at play that, that sometimes doesn't get discussed, right? That we, that we talk about Facebook and, and other networks um, kind of alleged failure to take this video down, but, but they did take the original video down reasonably quickly. They, they probably could have acted much quicker, but, you know, they do depend on people reporting this stuff and it being flagged to them. And the reason it kept resurging was because people kept posting it online. And, and, and so, you know, this feels like it, you know, it should be a wider conversation about 
society and what is motivating this you know facebook took it down some hundreds of thousands of times i believe that it's difficult to see that even with more draconian legislation what facebook could do apart from keep taking it down if people keep uploading it what you know what's what are the platforms supposed to be doing there and and i think that's the problem with a lot of this a lot of internet legislation a lot of kind of control in this area is that it's it's isolated it's isolated from other issues that we that we present you know present these as completely social media issues as if they're not issues which exist in the traditional media and as if they're not exist issues that exist offline and we expect the platforms to solve to solve them when we as a as a you know as a as a government and as a voting population have not been able to solve them and that's and and that's especially concerning when it involves giving more power to these platforms to to control content on them because while I'm not arguing that there should be no control of content and that that, that these you know that we should allow the, ex the spread of extremist content, I do want if I do want the control to be transparent and to be democratic. I you know I don't think we should I don't think we should desire that these private companies can can necessarily control everything we post without us being able to push back against this. You know, if a government is, if a democratic government is taking these actions, we have certain um, avenues we can go down, we go down judicial review. They maybe have more of an obligation of transparency. We can appeal to our own um, politicians to, to affect this. If a private company does this stuff, we are much more limited in, in how we can push back against this if we are, you know, the subject of censorship. And, you know, this is, you hate to make slippery slope arguments, but, you know, especially when it's slippery slope arguments from a kind of white supremacist level. But, you know, we need to have these conversations when it's about really obvious things that we agree on that should be censored before we ha are having these conversations when it's when a much more of a kind of messy gray area. Right. Yeah. Like I study a bit of Russian um, disinformation campaigns and, and they tend to focus on division and creating division within societies. And this is where it gets complicated because what is, in a sense, like we can target the, the providers of social media and say, you need to control that content more. But as you're suggesting, the vulnerability to that exposure already existed previous to mm. that occurring. And yet we don't go and necessarily explore what is our vulnerability in that area or um, uh, what are the issues that, as you suggest, like it's humans that are uploading it. It's not, it wasn't an automated upload. Um, it's humans consistently doing that. And that's not something we necessarily um, want to talk about or perhaps even know a way to talk about in the, in the sense that the way that social media, for example, or the internet has restructured politics to be almost like a physics experiment in its dynamics. Like the rapid escalations sort of occur exponentially and within a few hours. So it, it's not like the old slow, slow world we used to have. It's facilitated. I wouldn't want to use the term accelerationism, but it, it sort of facilitated a capacity for politics and, and society to function at scales that I guess didn't exist before. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the 30 years, what do you see as the next, what do you, what do you think the dangers or what do you think of the, what will happen in the next 30 years? How do you see it? Yeah. I mean, I think the dangers are that we, continue to allow internet and technology regulation to be something that doesn't get paid much attention to that, that, that you know we we let governments regulate this you know we, we pay attention when there's horrific events like christchurch but most of the time this stuff happens and, it, and it's not really covered in the media it's and it's and it's not it's not a key election issue ever and i think that's potentially dangerous because 
as as this technology becomes more and more sophisticated, the technology of control and of surveillance and of censorship, it's it's there's going to be an instinct and going to be a desire from de for democratic governments, let alone autocratic ones, to to implement this stuff, to 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 increase surveillance of people and increase potential control of of what we can do and say online, and and we need to be aware of this and we need to push our governments to to you know make sure that in the name of protecting us online they don't actually take away our freedoms and and i think this is partly due this is a problem but that that is it kind of derives from the the original uh kind of vision of the internet of this hyper libertarian free and open information will set us free type guff that was pushed by silicon valley for so long that we've become so used to this idea and, and we've we've kind of been sold on this pretense of what the internet looks like, which doesn't actually reflect necessarily what it looks like, that we've we've become complacent and we haven't necessarily thought about how we want this to develop. And there isn't a there isn't a strong kind of desire to push us in a in a way that involves more openness and, and more freedom online. It, it, the the instinct at the moment is to is to is to increase control. And there sh there is a way that we could have greater freedom and we and especially at those of uh, users and ordinary people could influence uh social media platforms and could influence these big companies and the government could empower us to do that but instead what seems to a lot of the time be the instinct is the government acts in a way that empowers both itself and empowers these companies and tends not to empower users and so using the term user do you think i mean it's possible we're in a, moving into a space now where um i guess we're not we wouldn't see ourselves or we're not citizens so much anymore as users. Um, I mean, will there be some sort of, will our elections be Google elections or in the future? Like, uh, uh, what is that? I guess I'm thinking about what the structure of TCPIP and uh, packet switching, how is that, I don't want to be determinist, but how is that might be framing, creating us as users in a system? And what does that mean if we move from citizens to a user-based experience? Um, does that, Will that mean that companies are more empowered to sort of set up citizenship models within their own platforms or? Yeah, and that's, I think, what will be very interesting that, you know, we're, when it comes to the big three, you know, when it comes to Facebook, Google, and Amazon, the idea that these are particularly market-regulated or, or, or competition-regulated companies is pretty absurd. You know, you can, your options with Facebook are Facebook or nothing. There, there isn't really a strong competitor that you can use, and and yes, people can leave Facebook if they if they disagree with it or if they if they don't like some of what it's doing, but that's also a big ask to put on people because you're giving up connections with with family overseas and with you know there are various ways you can get around it, but it, it's there isn't a, 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 a another kind of one stop shop, and and this has kind of always been the argument that oh if you don't like it stop using it and, you know don't use Google if you don't want to be surveilled don't use Facebook if you don't want to. Exp to cease fake news and stuff but i think we need to recognize that that just that power dynamic is is just so skewed now that the idea that that users by abandoning a platform are, are going to influence this platform it just isn't true and so we need to you know we need our governments to to protect us and to and to give us ways to influence these platforms especially as they become even more influential on the rest of society and like you're saying on politics that we need you know if if facebook is going to be driving um election you know is going to be influencing how people vote we need to be able to as voters we need to be able to influence how facebook behaves right i guess we see some of the possible outcomes of that 
in like in in Tibet, Xinjiang, and the use of WeChat, like if there's only one ecology to function in, then either you give up social connection with people, or you yeah you have to keep keep using the the mm. application. You're sort of bound to it if you want to be functioning in society. Yeah, yeah, and and WeChat's yeah WeChat's an interesting example because even. Uh, even people who you would think would never want to engage with the Chinese app. Um, I reported a lot about the t- Tibetan diaspora in, in Dharamsala in India. And these are people who have been targeted by Chinese surveillance and by, by Chinese hackers and by the Chinese authorities for, for decades. And yet nearly all of them are on WeChat because that's the only way they can talk to their family back in China. And, you know, so I think that's kind of the perfect example of just this idea that we can not use these platforms when these platforms are so enmeshed within our lives is absurd. And and they're only going to get more and more enmeshed. And, and so we need to be able to influence them in a different way short of just boycotting them. Right, and I think that's an optimistic and an encouraging way to finish up. So thanks very much for your time today, James. Thank you. Cheers. That's this week's episode of Password123. Don't forget to join me next fortnight for another episode. And for more information, just Google UNSW Canberra Cyber. I'm Tom Sear. Thanks for listening.